One of my favorite moments each week is to just rest uh, in that stillness uh, during the time of the Lord's Supper, just thinking about the significance and the simplicity of who God is and, and what he's done for us. Uh, we have an expression in our society we use in a couple of different ways, uh, one of them more sarcastically and uh, uh, sometimes it's, it's used in a different way, more meaningfully. Um, the phrase is famous last words. Um, you've likely, if you love somebody well, have heard them say to you um, famous last words, right? Uh, maybe, maybe last night someone in your household said, uh, don't worry, I'll set the clocks forward an hour. And you woke up this morning, yeah, famous last words. Um, you're here at the right time, so that probably is not your story. Uh, it may be more applicable to those that are here at 1030 who intended to be here at, at 9 o'clock. Or, or maybe what happens to me is that um, I'll be asked to do something. Remember to pick this up from the office or get this at the store. And I'll get home and Audrey will say, hey, where, where is that? You said you were going to get it. So, yeah, famous last words, right? I'm going to remember that. I want to look at this in the positive way. Um, there are last words that have been spoken to us, sent to us in emails, written in cards, given in text messages from people that we love that have significant meaning. And in history, there have been famous last words. In fact, if you do a brief Google search, you can put in the phrase famous last words and you'll come up with a number of websites that look at words throughout history from what we might consider famous people and what they said uh, or their last words were before they died. Now, as you read those and you compare those, you're gonna find that some of those have been attributed to legend, but some of them in time have proven to be true. Uh, one of my favorites from the list that I, I saw this week were those words of Harriet Tubman. You may know that name, uh, a slave, uh, freed, not freed, she, she got her own freedom, she, she fled, but she worked to free other slaves. And in 1913, when she was dying, her family and her friends surrounded her and they sang with her. They sang the African spiritual swing low, sweet chariot. Uh, that beautiful spiritual that speaks and looks to what God did for Elijah in sending a chariot to rescue him. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. And that's the song that she wanted sung with her as she was dying. And those that were present with her have written that her very last words, the very last words of Harriet Tubman were, swing low, sweet chariot. And I think about coming from a perspective of faith as a follower of Jesus I hope that some of my last words are as meaningful, that I'm looking forward to the hope, to what God supplies, what God will do. Have you ever been with someone on their deathbed? Have you, have you heard their last words? There's something about kind of that vice grip, the pressure of the coming end and, 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 the, and the weakness and the strength that's fading from the body that when someone has the opportunity and they're lucid enough to just kind of squeeze these powerful, poignant words and speak them into the lives of those that they love. They're famous last words. Famous last words don't always come when we die. Famous last words sometimes even come while we're living. Maybe you change positions, you, you leave a job, and you have the opportunity, it's rare, but you have the opportunity to speak to those that you have worked with and you impart to them some last words that you hope carry significance and carry weight. 
I've had that opportunity on two occasions when I was moving out of the youth minister role at a church in St. Joseph, Illinois. I had the opportunity on a bus coming back from a winter retreat, my very last time, on, my last day on the job, to speak to a bus full of like 40 high school students and just share with them a parting message. And we have still continued to hear from them how meaningful that was. When I moved here from Russellvania, Ohio, uh, one of our current elders, Brian Rutherford, and his wife were there on my final day, and I had a chance to share some last words with that congregation. Again, I've heard how meaningful those were. Message for somebody. Um, but our last words can be really meaningful. Maybe, maybe you speak these to a child when um, they're headed off to college. Uh, maybe you have the chance to share last words as a val valedictorian of your high school class or at some sort of ceremony. Uh, maybe those words are shared as you prepare to see your son or your daughter married. There's just that private moment where you speak these words into their life. We have these moments where we have these last words. And what we know about last words where they come on the deathbed or they come in a significant milestone moment is that they're deeply meaningful because of that pressure that kind of pushes to these poignant words. If you have the opportunity to intentionally choose your last words, what would you want them to be? What would you want said? What would you want communicated to the people that you care about the most? Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the last words of Jesus from the cross, his famous last words. There are seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross. Seven statements that reveal his heart, God's heart. They are short, they are brief, and they are poignant. And it's almost as though we see this, this pressure that comes as his strength is fading, as the agony overtakes, that, that he's able just to speak with power and clarity to those who are drawing near. Those seven statements, we don't know the exact order that they occurred in. Uh, one of them we're pretty sure about, that if Jesus says it is finished, that probably those are some of the last of the last words. Uh, but the rest of them we don't really know. There's kind of a tradition that was established around 600 AD of how those words were said, and we're gonna take them in that traditional order. But each week we'll look at one of these phrases, and it'll culminate with the final two phrases on Good Friday and the Good Friday experience here at Lebanon Christian Church but I hope that you'll see the meaning and the significance of what our Savior says from the cross. And I hope that you'll appreciate that each of these phrases is voiced from a place of incredible physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, and that pain, I think, only enhances the meaning and significance of those phrases. They are his famous last words. Now, if, if, if you sit where we sit, it's kind of hard to see these as Jesus's official last words. We have the beauty of being on this side of the cross and we see it through the lens of the empty tomb. So we know that Jesus not only died and was buried, but he raised again and that he spoke to people after his death and his resurrection. But let us not take that and allow it to lose the simplicity and the power of what was spoken when not everyone knew he was coming back. And some doubted the promises about being torn down and, and brought back in, in three days. The very first words we're going to look at will be in Luke chapter 23. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. As you find it, I want to give you some 
of the backstory that leads up to this moment. We're going to focus only on verses 32, 33, and 34 this morning. But what gets us to this place is when we get to the verses we'll read, Jesus has already been betrayed. Uh, That moment has already occurred in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was pleading with his disciples to pray with him. Judas has already betrayed him and literally sold him out for silver. Jesus has spent a whole night being bounced back and forth between various authorities in Jerusalem. He's been beaten. He's been scourged. And a crown of thorns has been pushed into his brow. It speaks to the agony, and not that we want to belabor this point. I don't want to disturb anyone, but if you've studied what happens in the moments leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, you know that it's brutal, that he would be beaten, that, that, that they would take a whip that has embedded within it bones and glass and metal, and it was intended to be slapped across the back and then raked across the back, tearing away skin from bone, Jesus is at a moment here where he is likely on the verge of, if not, going in and out of shock as his body responds to the pain and the anguish and and the trauma. And he's moving his way towards his place of execution. He's carrying at least part of the cross that he'll be crucified on, and his strength gives out, and a man is taken from the crowd to help carry that cross. And that's where we find ourselves in Luke chapter 23. We'll start with verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said in that moment, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they, the soldiers who had hung him there, divided up his clothes by casting lots. So the first of these seven statements, the first of these famous last words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Often we just want to jump to speaking about forgiveness, but I want to linger here in these verses and hopefully see the, the power that represents, is represented even what lies behind the statement. The first thing I want to point out for a, just the sake of orientation is that when you read the account of the crucifixion in the various gospels, you see two different terms used, Golgotha and the skull. And so if you're new to reading the Bible or you've not read it very well, if you just heard stories of Jesus' death, you may be confused. Was it the place of the skull? Was it Golgotha? And the answer is yes. Golgotha is a Hebrew word meaning the place of the skull. What Luke does is he, he, he gives us a translation of the Aramaic term, the, kind of this Hebrew uh, language or derived from Hebrew that, that would have meant the very same thing. You may also hear in the church, sometimes in songs, sometimes in conversation, the word Calvary. That word Calvary comes from a Latin word that means the place of the skull. So if you hear the word Calvary, if you hear the word Golgotha, if you hear the skull, it all refers to the same place, the place of Jesus' execution. So don't be confused. The second thing I'd like to highlight is who Jesus is with. 
Who is Jesus with as he's crucified? Verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. Verse 33, they crucified him there along with who? The criminals. Don't, don't let the tradition, don't, don't let the familiarity of the story numb you to the fact that here is Jesus, who we're told was sinless, who was tempted in every way we were, but was without sin, is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. A man who had not committed any heinous crimes. He's being crucified. He's being treated as a criminal. Jesus is led with criminals. People in the crowd see him as a criminal. He's hung on a cross between criminals. People walk by Golgotha. People walk by this place and they say, there are a bunch of bad men. There are a bunch of criminals. This is a false accusation placed upon Jesus. The other two men, they committed heinous crimes. Jesus had committed no crime. Falsely accused, falsely tried, unjustly crucified. And that's important. We know from other historians around the first century that most often when criminals were crucified, some of their last words were words of vengeance and words of judgment upon those who hung them there, cursing the Roman authorities. Men who had been justly criminalized and crucified, speaking words of judgment And yet here is one who is falsely accused. Here is one in whom there is no deceit. And does he take the opportunity to leverage words of judgment and vengeance? No, he offers a prayer of forgiveness. And then to see the weight of this, think about your own life. When have you been unjustly and unfairly accused? When have you been the victim of a false accusation? I'm guessing that many of us have been there, if not all of us have been there, and you know the pain when someone doesn't have the whole story or, or, they, or they jump to judgment and, and, and they spread lies about you and they, they accuse you of things that you're not guilty of and, and you know the weight of that and you know that oftentimes what wells up in us is, is a sense of we want vindication. We want vengeance. We want want them to see the truth. And yet here Jesus in this moment offers a prayer. That's the next thing I want you to see. We look at Jesus' words, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Again, we often jump to forgive. But what's the first word that Jesus utters in this statement? Father. Who who is Jesus' father? God, right? So Jesus is speaking to God, his father. What do we call speaking to God? What's our term for that? Prayer. So, So Jesus in this moment is praying. What I'd like you to consider is what is the important place or what is the role of prayer in our practice of forgiveness? How often when we talk about forgiveness do we talk about prayer? And I won't give you the answer right now. I'll make you hold on to that for a moment. 
But what role should prayer play in our own forgiveness of other people? So Jesus prays, Father, what's his request in this prayer? Forgive them. What's that word forgive mean? Uh, it's borrowed from the financial world. It means to cancel or release from debt. And so in the financial world, when you take from somebody else, you owe them. And there is a debt. There, there's, there's red in your ledger. And forgiveness means canceling that debt. All this is incurred, all this I owe. Someone forgives and say, guess what? You don't owe me anything. So what is Jesus praying? He's praying, Father, forgive them. Cancel the debt that's been incurred. What debt? The debt of their sin. When we disobey God, when we disobey his commands, when we live in rebellion to what God's design is for us in all host of ways that he proclaims in his word. We incur debt. We owe God. This is who he is, and we take from him. And Jesus pleads, forgive them, cancel that debt. Who is the them? Who, who is the, the them that Jesus is asking for forgiveness for? Well, the them is most certainly the immediate audience there at the cross. If you read further on in Luke chapter 23, you see there are people there jeering and sneering and mocking him. The them are the soldiers who just have put him on the cross and hoisted him into the air. The them are, are those that are now casting lots for his clothes, essentially playing rock, paper, and scissors for what they can get from the crucified rather than the suffering of the one who hangs over them. The them most certainly is the, the Roman power, Pilate, who in cowardice refuses to let an innocent man go free and instead releases the insurrectionist. The them most certainly is the crowd that just five or six days before was hailing him and praising God for him and then turned their chance to crucify him. The them are the Jewish leaders who instead of looking to God and his mercy and the fulfillment of prophecy and responding to this teacher sent from God, the Messiah, have led to the unjust charges and false accusations that leave him now on the cross. The them, it's probably Judas, who right about this time is throwing a rope over a tree to hang himself because of his remorse. The them is anyone who is denied or is complicit in Jesus' execution. And if we're honest, the them is us. To make all the English teachers in the room mad, we are them. I am them. You are them. How do we know that? Again, because we stand on this side of the cross. We're able to look through the lens of the empty tomb and, and we, we read the words of Paul in Romans that tells us that while we were still sinners, who died for us? Christ. You know the old hymn, were you there when they crucified our Lord? Um, yeah, in a way we were. 
Do you remember the words of the prophet Isaiah? It's by his wounds, speaking of the anointed one and what he would do, it's by his wounds that we are healed. We are them. And so as Jesus, falsely accused, hangs on a cross, a criminal's cross, he prays to the Father, Father, forgive them. Cancel their debt. Cancel my debt. Cancel your debt. For they know not what they do. That's a puzzling statement, isn't it? Does this imply in some way that that those who had hung Jesus on the cross had no idea that he might actually die? No, they, they knew that the cross was a one-way execution stake. Does this imply in some way that they weren't fully aware that death would result or, or, or that this man had been called the Messiah? No. But it communicates the idea that if if these who had betrayed him, if these who had falsely accused him, if these who had hung him on the cross, were they to truly know who he was, they could not have done what they did. If the men who helped drive the cross into the earth knew that the one that they were hoisting was the one who formed the earth, they couldn't have done that. If they knew that the one who hung there bleeding and gasping for air on the verge of suffocation was the one who knit them together and formed them in their mother's womb, they couldn't have brought themselves to do that. If the Jewish leaders had recognized that he, in fact, was the Messiah, so different than what they had believed, but the one whom God had sent, they would not have falsely accused him. He was the one they were waiting for. And I think about you and me. When, when we, prior to our decision in faith to follow Jesus, when we live in sin, when we live in rebellion, again, in all of its forms, we, we don't see the beauty and the power of who God has made us to be yet. And so we participate in behaviors and practices and we do things that were we to know that God has a better way, we would never do them. And yet Jesus still pled, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One of the beauties here that maybe we don't often think about is this speaks to the integrity of who Jesus is. Do you remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Uh, we might call it Jesus' Kingdom Manifesto. Uh, probably a teaching that Jesus repeated again and again. We don't know that for a fact. We know there's a similar message that's given in a different time in Luke. Just to give you the essence of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to, to worship God and live how he intended them. Here's what Jesus proclaimed, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, there's a new way. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus, who had taught, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What does he do when he is the victim of those same enemies? He loves them and he prays for them. And again, I don't think the meaning of this should be lost on us. 
what's our first response when someone hurts us or harms us? Or, 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 or our mothers and our fathers out there, when someone attacks your children, don't we often work to disparage, to get back at, to, 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 to do something against those who have hurt us or the ones that we love? And what's Jesus' response to love and to pray for? What would happen in each of our lives if when we were hurt and when we were wrong? Because can we just be honest? If we had to make a list, all of us probably would have someone on our list that would maybe fit a definition of some sort of enemy. I remember being in, in, in high school and we had moved to Brownstown, Indiana. I was only in school there for two years. It was my junior year. And uh, if you've ever moved in the middle of uh, school years or changed schools, uh, you know how hard it can be to try to fit in. And uh, things were really going well for me. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm four or five months into my junior year. No one has tried to beat me up. Nothing bad had happened. And, and suddenly there was this, this man. His name was Travis. I won't give his last name because this is the day of the internet and everything travels. But uh, Travis told friends that he wanted to beat me up. And some of those same mutual friends asked Travis, why do you want to beat Craig up? Well, I don't know. He just seems like a nice guy. <laughs> and so we would press the issue with my friends and they would talk to Travis. And Travis was like, you know what? He just seems too nice. I just want to beat him up. And so there were threats made and, and I struggled. And there were times when these words of Jesus came back to me because I was like, God, I don't change his heart. I don't know why he wants to beat the mess out of me you know, after school. And what I didn't realize is that what I was experiencing in high school just is the same story as you become an adult. You've worked with them. You may have gone to church with them. There are people, for whatever reason, just seem opposed, and we have opportunities to pray for them and to love them. But we also know how incredibly hard it is. So as we look to these, some of the last words of Jesus... Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. What's the impression, what are the implications that they should have for our lives today? I would suggest that the first is that if Jesus pleads for our forgiveness, then we have to recognize that we're people in need of forgiveness. You can't forgive debt unless there is debt. And the truth of the faithful witness of God's word is that as you look into it and you test yourself against it, you recognize that you're a sinner and you have failed and you have disobeyed and you've incurred debt against the God who made you who is perfect in every way and that we indeed need forgiveness. And so the first implication for any of us is that we've not responded in faith to what Jesus has done is to respond, is to acknowledge that there is a perfect God who loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for you. That by believing in him, by placing your faith and your trust in him, that you would obey him, that you would repent of your sin and you would turn to him and his spirit would in, in, in go inside of you and, and begin to make you new as you would work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
that faith would drive you into the waters of baptism, where we're buried with Christ and raised anew, forgiven of our sins. There is forgiveness. Jesus prayed that for us and died for that for us. You know, I think sometimes we, we, we tend to think about Jesus and it's as though as he walked this earth, he had his wallet and, and he would pull out his wallet and he's like, oh, I have a God card. I can use it anytime I want. And so we think that Jesus offers forgiveness from the cross and he prays for us because there's this special supernatural power that's unavailable to you and I. But we read the exact opposite in Philippians chapter 2 where we're told that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. He chose not to hang on to that divinity, that, that, that all the aspects of, of the God card, if you will. But instead, we're told he emptied himself of those privileges and became nothing. He took the very nature of a human being. He was made in human flesh. And that's how he died for us. And so when Jesus on the cross offers you and I forgiveness, he's not offering the God card. That's why we see him pray. He asks God to forgive. And he becomes this funnel, this conduit of God's forgiveness to us. But we have to receive it. I remember the story I read from Tony Evans years ago. He shared it in the message. There was a, a trial, I think it was around 1923, where a man had been given a presidential pardon. And the man, because of his crime, he felt like he deserved his punishment, so he refused the pardon. And so there's this huge debate. If a president gives a pardon, if a sovereign gives a pardon, doesn't it have to be received? And the conclusion of one of the Supreme Court justices was, no, for a pardon to be received, it has to be accepted. And what I would let you know and help you understand is that God has granted forgiveness, but unless that pardon is accepted in faith, it doesn't take hold. And so if you are at a place where you need to respond to what God has done and respond in faith, I'd encourage you to, to use the tools we've given you. You can come forward at the end of one of our worship experiences and start the conversation. You can talk to someone who's invited you. You can email us, connect at lebanonchristian.org. You can scan one of the QR codes around our building and fill out the connection card to start the conversation to receive the forgiveness that God supplies. The, the second implication I would suggest is if you're already a follower of Jesus, if you've already responded in faith to him, is that you would orient your life to being a vessel of his forgiveness. We're hurt all the time by people. And sometimes we think that the forgiveness that needs to be applied and offered, we have to somehow foster from within ourselves. But what if we understood that we are just to be funnels of forgiveness? God supplies the forgiveness to us and then we get to be funnels who extend his forgiveness to other people. It's not something we have to create for ourselves. Peter asked Jesus, Matthew 18, how many times do I have to forgive my brother or my sister when they sin against me? And Peter, being generous, thinks, hey, how about seven times? That sounds like an incredible number, God. Like, like that would be remarkable if I, if I forgo forgave my brother or my sister seven times. And, and Jesus is like, it's a start, Peter, but, but how about you try 70 times seven Essentially, using hyperbole and exaggeration to say, Peter, there's no limit to how you are to forgive. 
So I wonder if we've already been transformed by Jesus and received his forgiveness, if it's entered the funnel of our lives, will we be people who then extend that forgiveness to other people? Who is it in your life right now that has hurt you? Who is in your life right now that has harmed you in such a way that, that there's a debt that's been incurred? And will you choose to intentionally pray that your father would help you extend his forgiveness to them? I wanna end with a few more famous last words. The emperor Julian um, was kind of considered one of the last of the Constantine dynasty rulers over the Roman Empire. You may recall that Constantine, for a variety of motives, uh, made Christianity the official faith of the Roman Empire. Uh, Emperor Julian thought that was part of what was leading to the demise of the Roman Empire. And so he committed much of his rule to undoing what Constantine had done. Well, the Emperor Julian on his deathbed, is asked a few questions. I want to read to you what are considered his very last words. After spending his life trying to reverse the official endorsement of Christianity, of opposing the way of Christ, Emperor Julian's famous last words were these. With his dying breath, he exclaimed, you have won, O Galilean. As much as he tried to oppose what Jesus had done, he ended his life in defeat. Now, whether this is a defeat that says I'm surrendering to the way of God after all, or it's defeat saying what I committed my life to has been a waste, we don't know. But we do know is that he acknowledged that the Galilean, Jesus Christ, had won. May we remember that Jesus Christ has won. He's won over your sin as you submit to him in faith. And he can win in your relationships as you practice his forgiveness. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for these incredible last words of Jesus from the cross. May we respond to your forgiveness, Father. May we accept your offer. And God, may we be people who extend that and live as funnels of forgiveness for you. God, would you be praised? Would you be honored? Would you be glorified in and through us? In your name we pray, amen.